Well, we come now to what truly is the grand finale of the book of Esther. Uh, Ironically, I think uh, there's a tendency to believe that chapter 4 is the big finale, you know, to come to the kingdom at such a time as this. And yet, if that were the big message of the book, the book would have stopped right there and said, all right, there you got it. Okay, carry on. But really, the big message of the book is right here at the very end. And as we go through this final section, these final three chapters, I want to give you a lens that you would watch for the gospel here. It is filled in these pages, and we will at the end of our lesson go and observe those points. But uh, do yourself a favor along the way and see if you can see the gospel on display as these final sections now reveal themselves. Uh, We left off with two reversals so far, and yet we need to still have another reversal. Remember the first reversal was that Esther was swept away by the king's edict and looking for a new queen, and she is able by the grace of God to find favor in Xerxes' sight and becomes queen over Persia. And then the second great reversal was with Mordecai as Haman as the enemy of the Jews finally has had enough of of Mordecai, has set up for him to be executed the next day, impaled on a 75-foot pole, that a great reversal had occurred because the king had a sleepless night and found out that Mordecai was the one who had saved his life from an assassination plot. And rather than Haman then getting to have his plan put together, Esther pleads on behalf of uh, the Jewish people that, that Mordecai and herself as well as the Jews be spared. And so now Haman is put on that impaling pole rather than Mordecai. But the solution hasn't been fully presented yet because while Mordecai now has been spared from the wrath of Haman, we still have an edict outstanding that has at the end of the year, all the Jews are to be killed, destroyed and annihilated. And remember that we were told in the beginning, as well as we see in other passages of Scripture, that the law of the Medes and the Persians is not going to be revoked. So you don't just simply say, ah, never mind, we're not going to do that anymore. And so we are left with this one final problem. What is going to happen in regards to this decree that's still outstanding that all the Jews are going to be killed throughout the empire? And that's where things pick up in Esther chapter 8, where... We're going to notice in Esther chapter 8 that Esther again pleads to the king and uh, is going to intercede on behalf of her people. It is interesting, in verse 3 we are told that Esther now falls at his feet again to begin pleading. And again the king extends the royal scepter and again reminds us that you just don't talk to the king and say, here's my wish list of things that I want. Even if you found favor in the king's sight, you just don't start telling him what to do. And so as she begins to plead, he extends the scepter again. And so what is it that you want? And she begins to express concerning this evil plan that Haman has created. And what are we going to ultimately do about this? We still have the extermination of the Jews on the books. She says in verse 6, how can I bear to see this disaster fall upon my people and see the destruction of my family? Uh, Xerxes again. Again, 
then basically says, you guys write a law. We'll talk about this on Wednesday night where we have talked about how uh, in this book we see Xerxes over and over again passing uh, authority and will over to other people. And here it happens again where he basically tells Mordecai in verse 7, write another decree in the king's name uh, in my behalf as whatever you, you see fit. And so what they see fit to do then is to overwrite or overrule the prior edict. At the end of the year, we have the annihilation, destruction, and killing of all of the Jews. And so the edict that Mordecai then puts together is very simple, that the Jews will have a right to assemble to be able to protect themselves from any who would attack them. I I want to underscore this edict because uh, from a lot of the things that I read, people think that, well, what's going on here is massive vengeance and random killings and mass slaughters and wiping out of Persians. Please read the edict carefully. If the Jews are attacked, they have the right to respond and to protect themselves. That's what this edict then is passed throughout all of the empire for them to do. And so that edict then is sent out as noticed in verse 9 that we are in the third month at this point. Remember that this destruction day is all the way in the twelfth month. So we are a long way away. Plenty of time for this new edict to go throughout all of the empire. But rather than quickly jumping to chapter 9 and say, now let's see what happened, there is a very important short statement that's made here in verses 15 through 17. You will notice in verse 15 it says, when Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen, And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of light and happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. And many people of other nationalities became Jews for fear of the Jews had seized them. And so before we speed on to how the solution is going to all play out, it is important to observe that there are some statements about Mordecai and who Mordecai is at this point, that now he leaves the king's presence and he's got royal robes on, he has a crown, and everybody is celebrating the the uh, promotion and elevation of Mordecai. We see the wording that it's a time of joy, a time of honor, a time of jubilation. Some translations say a time of light. Some say a time of happiness. So much so that there is even this own small reversal going on that rather than people than being enemies, Enemies of the Jews now people want to belong as the people of God for fear of the Jews has seized them. Very subtle, and it'll all come together at the end, but we can't miss these important statements about Mordecai and what he's accomplishing and how the people 
are receiving him. And that puts us in chapter 9. You'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 9, we now hit fast forward and we go right to the 13th day of the 12th month. This has been the big deal for many chapters now, awaiting that day. That is the day that the edict had been sent out by Haman for the annihilation, killing, and destruction of the Jews. We are there now. And it tells us there in verse 1, But the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out on this day. The enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned. And the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. This is a huge declaration about the reversal that has occurred. It is a day when the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. This was going to be the great day. And I love how the NIV reads, and the tables were turned. We now have a final reversal taking place. The third one that we have in the book. And so great is the reversal. In verse 2, we are told that the Jews assembled in these provinces throughout Persia to attack those who determined to destroy them. For no one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And so here is a picture of here are the people of God, the Jews. No one is able to come up against them in this, though they try to attack them. And you'll see some pictures of that, like in verse 5, about the destroying that happened, even though this edict had gone out. There was an attempt by many of the people who were enemies of the Jews to go ahead and make this day the day of their annihilation. And verse 2 is telling us that no one is going to be able to succeed in doing this. Verse 4 again seems to want us to observe Mordecai and not miss him again. In chapter 9 verse 4 it says that Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread through the provinces and he became more and more powerful. So you're watching now the rise of Mordecai. Greater prominence, greater honor, greater power is observed for him as he comes into this important position. And the rest of chapter 9 begins to unfold some of the attempts of the reversal. Verse 5, the Jews struck down their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them. And you'll notice a listing of some of the men. There's in verse 6, 500 men. Verse 7, though, is particularly notable because it tells us these names. I will not dare to try to read these Persian names for you. No chance. But I'll jump to verse 10 and point out, these are the ten sons of Haman. And so we are seeing a little bit more play out is that this reversal continues and the ten sons of Haman are killed. But look at what the end of verse 10 says. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now, the reason why that is curious is because back in chapter 8, when Mordecai gives the decree about this this, uh, new edict to overpower what the enemies were to be able to do against the Jews, we're told in verse 11 that the Jews had the right to assemble and to protect themselves from any who came against them. And the end of verse 11 of chapter 8 says, and to plunder the property of their enemies. But here, as Haman's family is destroyed, apparently the ten sons tried to go ahead and kill these Jews, and they die in the process. We're told in verse 10, the Jews do not lay hand on the plunder. 
In fact, notice it again at the end of verse 15 and talking about this next day as this continues. It says that 300 were killed and they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 16, the same thing. As there is relief from their enemies, they killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. When you say something three times, it's trying to make you see something. Three times in a very short span, it says they didn't take the plunder. They didn't take their property. They didn't take the spoils. They didn't do it. Well, what is the point that is being observed here except to show the reason for all of this is not that the Jews looked at this and said, boy, we can get rich off these guys. I can't wait to take their property. But this is ultimately God's judgment that these people, even in the face of this edict that said they have the right to protect themselves as the enemies of the Jews are attempting to kill them. And this then is ultimately God's judgment against them. It is seen then in in these pictures of, of having the lineage of Haman then ultimately destroyed. Let me step back for a moment and get this huge picture about Haman. Remember back in chapter two, we were introduced to Mordecai and then we were introduced to Haman. And we observe this strange statement about Haman where he has a lineage that goes back to Kish and he is described as an Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And what we see in Mordecai is now he suddenly looks like the new Saul in a unique way. Because now we have through Mordecai these symbolic Amalekites that we've talked about, these enemies of the Jews, in particular Haman and his household, are now utterly destroyed. But consider what makes this unique. When King Saul went to kill the Amalekites, he didn't utterly destroy all the Amalekites, but he took the plunder. And now they don't take the plunder They just finish the job and do what God had wanted in the first place in destroying the Amalekite, the enemies of the people of God. Remember, the Amalekite history was an unwarranted attack on Israel in the middle of the wilderness as they were on their way. And it plays out here the same way. Here is this edict saying, don't do it. Don't attack them. They have a right to assemble and defend themselves. And they do it anyway. And so it pictures this long hostility of the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people now finally receiving a due judgment, a a justice finally occurs here. And it is interesting to see this imagery of that. And it particularly plays out in verse 18. Notice it says here in verse 18, the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and 14th And then on the 15th, they rested and made a day of feasting and joy. I want you to see the enemies are defeated and the people of God are at rest. So there is important imagery here of God coming to the rescue and rescuing his people, saving them from this destruction, reversing the tables again, and ultimately now bringing judgment on anyone who chose to be an enemy of God's people. And in particular, to note by name in verses 8 through 10, here's the names of Haman's sons. 
And why are we doing that? To show this is God's judgment and this is the full reversal that it was supposed to happen. And that was supposed to take place, this judgment and justice, all the way back in the days of Saul for the things that had happened all the way back in the days of the Exodus. And so here we are now so long down the road. And yet now finally a vindication is observed. This vindication is so important that in chapter 9, verse 20, all the way to the end of the book, the whole section is now an explanation why the Jewish people are to never forget this day. This is now to become an annual celebration, a day that they will always remember. Verse 22 is very important in the description because it describes there what was supposed to happen and how it did not happen. In verse 22, this is the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. Notice the statement of reversal fully made that what is supposed to happen for future generations is that they would always remember how they'd received relief from their enemies, sorrow turned to joy, mourning that is turned into a, into a great day of celebration. In fact, verses 24 and 25 go on to observe how the evil that had been plotted against the Jewish people had now returned back upon their own head. And so let the memory of this day and of this event never fade away. Very important declaration made in verse 28 is to be remembered by every generation, by every family, in every province, in every city, and let it never die out from generation to generation to generation. And I want you to then see something interesting, how the book ends. Because the whole book ends in verse 3 of chapter 10 by saying this. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by many, by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. The book again wants to zero in on Mordecai and say, I want you to look at him one more time and see the final analysis of this Mordecai person who is second in preeminence, held in high esteem because he worked for the good of his people and he spoke up for their welfare. All right. Now I pass up the papers and give you the test. Did you see the gospel In those three chapters, because in those three chapters, the full presentation of the New Testament gospel is absolutely on display. What do we see from the very beginning as chapter eight opens is that we are seeing yet again intercession needs to be made on behalf of the people. This is the big New Testament image of what Christ does for us is that intercession needs to be made. We are destined to die. We are doomed because of our sins. And the enemy of us, Satan and sin and death, stands against us. And so intercession is is required for us. And we see what Mordecai did at that moment was write a new law that counteracted the law of death that was in place. 
And so here is what the new covenant of Christ does for us. We have the law of sin and death standing against us without hope of life whatsoever. And Christ comes and writes a new covenant, a new law that counteracts that. And that's what you see Romans along with many other places by the Apostle Paul talking about is that now we've gone from death to life. Now we have this new covenant, this new law, this new testament that is able to counteract the one that condemned us. All throughout, he keeps talking about Mordecai's new clothes. New clothes always represents a status uh, in scriptures and how Mordecai with these new clothes begins to rule over the empire as preeminent in that way and over and over again you see that picture with christ if we could do a 30 minute excursus over here i would but i won't but let me give it to you very quick one of the best pictures of that is in john 13 what seems to be the simple imagery of jesus washing his disciples feet and there is something Amazing there because in very subtle way it describes that what Jesus does in that scene is he takes his robe and he puts it off and he goes and he grabs a basin and he takes a servant towel and ties it around his waist, dons the clothing of a servant and begins to wash the disciples' feet. And the text clearly tells us after he finishes that, He puts the towel aside and he puts his garments back on. No longer doing the servant role, but back in his role as king. And you're seeing that here with Mordecai. Where Mordecai has gone to being stated to death. He's just not going to be able to survive this. Haman is going to kill him. And instead a reversal happens and he goes from death to life. And the picture of that is these new clothes with this new status and this new preeminence as he rules over the empire. And so it is with Christ who goes from death to life, ascends to the father, takes the place of preeminence and rules over the world. In fact, the reception of this news of Mordecai's elevation is pretty much described as the gospel. You will note that it's stated that this, they were, saw this as a celebration that brought light, happiness, gladness, joy, and honor. That's the definition of what the good news is. It is light to the nations. It is joy and celebration for what has been accomplished by our Savior. And so here it is with Mordecai. And Mordecai writes this new law and gives it out through the edict. And as the Jews begin to read it, they celebrate this Good news, this light, this happiness, this joy and honor that they have received. And what did it cause people to do but change their allegiances when they heard the new law? They now change their allegiances. They are no longer Persians, but identify themselves as the people of God. They now begin to say, we are Jews with you for fear of them and fearing the edict and fearing what could come. They now change their allegiance and they are going to be then with God and they will be numbered with the people of God, though they be of other nationalities. Here is this inkling of Gentile inclusion as here are the nations coming in and joining with the people of God under the new Mordecai who has offered this new edict that brings good news to the people. When the day of judgment finally came, Mordecai and the people 
have complete victory. Finally, this day that we have been waiting for, for chapter after chapter after chapter, it finally arrives in chapter 9, and it is a victorious day. And it's a victorious day not only for Mordecai, but it is a victorious day for the people of God. Those who are numbered with Mordecai, they now have victory over their enemies. And so the declaration is made, this victory should never be forgotten, but regularly celebrated by God's people, remembering the relief that had been brought and how sorrow had been turned to joy. Friends, this is what the Lord's Supper is. This is our regular celebration that is to never be forgotten of how relief has come to us and how mourning has turned to joy Sorrow has been vanished away. And the final words, Mordecai is elevated because he worked for the people. Because he sought out their welfare and he brought them peace. This is what the New Testament is capitalizing on in describing the gospel to us and the events of these final three chapters then bring the culmination of what the book of Esther has been all about in asking the question, will God rescue his people? Will God be there for them? Even though he's not sending prophets, even though he's not speaking directly to them, even though there are zero miracles going on, in fact, God's name is never mentioned in the book. Will God still deliver his people and rescue them? And the answer is a resounding yes. And that answer is still a resounding yes today. Listen to what the New Testament says. For like example, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through death, through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Do you hear the chapters of, of Esther in that? Here are the Jews. Edict goes out. Fear of death. What are we going to do? Everybody's fasting and mourning. And now a new edict is issued through Mordecai. Now there is no reason for fear of death. No more fear of that happening. Instead, it is a time of light and joy. And here depicted for us that our enemy being the devil. The Apostle Paul proclaimed this in his resurrection section. Look past a little bit of the the resurrection aspect and listen again to the concept of this victory that the people of God have. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we all shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body put must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. 
But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is what the Apostle Paul is imaging is this very concept is that death now has been swallowed up in victory. The sting was the law. The law has been set aside. We now live under a law of hope and a law of life. Now let's end in just talking about where our place is in this story. Because the theme that I have put before you as our study of Esther has been living courageously. And I think this book helps us to live courageously in a very important way when we see our place in the story. And it can be a little bit of a challenge because it's a merging of things now and things in the future. But I want us to consider that where we sit in our time frame, if we were to put ourselves in the time frame of the book of Esther, would probably be around the end of chapter 8. Because the reversal decree has been already issued, but we're still awaiting the day of judgment against God's enemies. That it's already been decreed. It's already gone throughout the land. We already have the good news of light and hope. And the reversal of the death decree has already been given. But we haven't seen the end of God's enemies yet. But we are able to live courageously because we know that outcome. We live courageously today because we've heard this decree that those who stand against God and those who stand against the people of God are going to be crushed. And there is no reason to fear because God is ultimately going to judge. You think about what that's being pictured there at the end of Esther, where the people go from fear and what's going to happen to, hey, when that day comes, we're going to be fine. God is with us. The new decree has been written and the enemies who may come against us, they will not succeed. And ultimately, then what this book is imaging for us today, let's start with Mordecai and bring it to us. When we saw it with Mordecai and Haman in chapters four, five, and six and seven, there was Mordecai and he experienced a reversal and a rescue and an elevation. He was sentenced to die the next day. A reversal occurs. He's rescued from death and elevated to the highest place in the kingdom. And that became symbolic of what was going to happen in the later chapters, where for the people of Mordecai, the Jews, they were going to also experience the reversal through the edict and be rescued from the hands of their enemies and be elevated among the people. And we have observed in Christ his reversal and rescue from death an elevation to the right hand of God. And friends, that is symbolic of the coming reversal, rescue, and elevation for those who belong to Christ. That is what the book of Esther is portraying. Just as Mordecai's rescue and elevation was picturing the future rescue and elevation of the Jews in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Christ's rescue and elevation from death to life to the right hand of God to the preeminence 
is a picture of what will ultimately happen to us when the day of judgment finally comes. For us now, the day of judgment is not a day of fear, but the final day of reversal where the enemies of God are defeated and the people of God are ultimately elevated, belonging with him for eternity. Let's go to God in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, what an amazing picture you have painted for your people in this book. And Lord, we thank you that we know it is your hand that put all that together in defending and rescuing your people in even the darkest of days. Lord, we pray that we would have that hope and live courageously in the days ahead, knowing full well that your edict is as well in effect, that ultimately those who stand against you and stand against those who are faithful will be judged, and that ultimately we will be exalted before you in the final day. Lord, we pray that we would have this always before our eyes, that we would never lose sight of the day that's coming. We would never lose sight of the great reversal that lies ahead, the great hope that is given to us. Help us to not lose sight of it as we live in times in this world that are dark and chaotic and sinful and wicked. Help us to not lose sight of who we are and help us to never forget what you've accomplished through your son. May we always remember and always look forward to that coming day where all the tables are turned and we will be with you for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.